Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. There's a wealth of people doing great world healing work, so I sometimes lose track of some of the people I'd really like to bring to your attention. And that's the case with today's guests. The Bible Bash podcast started early in 2019, and I featured some of their material last year. But it's been 12 months since I got around to showcasing their really wonderful thought and insight. Bible Bash is an opportunity to see the Bible through non-gender conforming eyes. We've got two great people to share with us today. Peterson Toscano, you may know because of his Citizens Climate radio shows that we share here on Spirit in Action every three months. And today, Peterson is joined by his Bible Bash confederate, Liam Hooper, the founder of Ministries Beyond Welcome. With both keen minds and open hearts, this gay man and this trans man will open vistas of religious insight today. Over to you, Liam and Peterson. Thanks, Mark. Peterson and I are happy to be sitting in today as guest hosts for Spirit in Action. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to take what we do through Bible Bash podcast and embed it in Spirit in Action so that people on the radio can hear it. A quick note before the show begins. I'm really excited about this episode. Liam has some incredible insights about Daniel chapter 5, but we did experience some technical glitches, which I've mostly edited out, but there are a couple of crackles every now and then that I don't want to distract you. We're working on this so that it will never happen again, but just wanted to give you a heads up. So enjoy the show. Welcome to the Bible Bash podcast. I'm Liam Hooper in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I'm Peterson Toscano in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. This is a podcast where Liam and I, and guests at times, talk about a particular Bible passage. And then we also introduce you to another passage, a non-biblical text. So, but you have a text today um, from the book of Daniel, is that right? Chapter 5 of Daniel where previously Daniel's been serving Nebuchadnezzar, who in the, in the midst of absorbing all these revelations Daniel has given him, has kind of melted down and he it comes unraveled. It's like a cow eating grass in the field, pretty much coming unhinged, right? And so the regent Belshazzar sort of takes over for a little while, while who knows what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar to get himself together. To me, this story is satire. There's a lot of hyperbole, and it's just huge in the telling. It's like a Broadway show with a lot of shoulder. Chapter 5 even begins with King Belshazzar, even though he's actually a regent, having this great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And then he has one of the servants go and actually, and this is just intense, he has them go and get the golden vessels, the goblets that Babylonians had taken out of the temple. They then are drinking wine out of 
ritual goblets stolen from the temple. They drink the wine and praise the gods of bronze and iron and wood and stone. And then we have this situation where in the midst of all of this, the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king loudly called to bring the enchanters, Chaldeans and the astrologers, because there is this disembodied human hand writing on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Daniel gets called to interpret because none of the rest of them can read the language that's being written on the wall. But Daniel can read it. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar will die. And then that very night, the chapter ends, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Right. So there's this, I mean, the whole thing, they're all drunk. The concubines have drunk wine and everybody's, you know, feasting. And in the midst of this, Daniel gets to come in and say, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Yet he's saying, okay, please don't kill the other guys. And he's got to figure out how to deliver this message to, to Belshazzar in a way that kind of caretakes him a little bit and says, you know, okay, this is heavy in the midst of the fact they're all drunk. And Daniel has to deliver this message and at the same time reject all of the stuff, robes and gold and and promote you again as if, you know, that means something to a person who's enslaved. And this speaks to me really strongly of the circumstances and conditions that oppressed people find themselves in throughout history. This awful place of marginalization and disenfranchisement at best and outright oppression at worst and often enslavement and this need to survive. But also in the midst of all that, this call to caretake the empire, right? Like oppressed people are always caretaking not only the direct oppressor, but all the people in the dominant and dominating culture who mirror, reflect, or um, are somehow connected to the oppressor, right? I think the history of the way African Americans and other peoples of color have had to caretake not only, you know, everyone from the plantation owner to the foreman and all the other white people in society, but still white people to this day. You know, and very similar to the way that Muslims have to caretake Christians and white folks in the dominant culture and that queer folks and particularly trans folks have to caretake everybody. You know, like every time someone misgenders a trans person, we're in this awful place of figuring out how to advocate for ourselves, pet everybody on the head, constantly navigating this need to caretake because our survival depends on not offending people too much. And yet still not only surviving, but finding a way to thrive and take care of ourselves. Yeah. And it's interesting because As- Aspinage is a caretaker, right? For these boys. And part of it is 
clearly it looks like compassion, but also it's, it's, it's his job. He's doing it for the king. Right. All there's, there's so much trauma that's put on, on people who then are required to take care of other people, uh, who are oppressed or who are incredibly privileged. Yes. 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 And I just, you know, I can't help but be struck by that in this story, right? And the, the workings of empire then are not very different from the way that they are now, except perhaps we've become a little bit more maybe sophisticated about how oppression is institutionalized and systematized throughout the structures of our culture. But it's oppression, right? We are living in empire. Yet there's all this really subtle, strange caretaking that goes on in that because folk got to live, right? You, the, the idea is to make it to the end of the day, right? Yeah. <laughs> in more than one way. So in what ways are you seeing Daniel? Can you give some specific examples of Daniel uh, caretaking the, the king and the regent? Well, for example, Belshazzar is so desperate to understand this bizarre sort of mystical writing on the wall sort of prophecy that has become part of our everyday vernacular and people don't even see that, right? So this story has lived with us in things like you have been weighed and measured and and um, the handwriting on the wall. Can't you see the writing on the wall? Among Jewish thinkers, there was for a long time this thought that Daniel maybe shouldn't even be in the canon, right? Because he was so caretaking of Nebuchadnezzar. But you know he's going to die if he doesn't. Yeah, he's in a he's in a strange situation now. It is interesting that he rejects the perks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not all of them. Obviously, he's getting you know housed and fed and all that. But the extra perks for doing his his job, which we don't see necessarily happening in Esther with uh, the kinsman Mordecai, he he accepts those perks. Yes. Uh, in fact, that some of some of the tension that happens is because people are are jealous that he has those perks. And Joseph most definitely receives the perks for himself and his family. But Daniel stands out as someone who's saying, "Nope, I don't want this." extra stuff. Right. Right. And even knowing they're probably going to lavish him with it anyway, right? Like you can almost sense that he needs to say, I'm not doing this for the perks. I'm doing it because it's my job. Yeah. And I don't have the choice to quit my job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just also fascinating to me that it's poked fun at too, right? Like this obvious hyperbole in this story, the satire is just dripping off the page. And yet it's really not funny. Now, what is curious about this, of course, is he prophesies that, that this king, Belshazzar, this interim king, is going to die. But he doesn't die of natural causes. He's assassinated. It makes me wonder, even with these, this idea of he's not, you know, he says, don't, don't, don't harm the other people who can't interpret the dream. Is he leveraging power? Is this part of a coup? And that this actually is an armed rebellion that Daniel is part of. You know, here he is, you know, serving the king and all, but it, it seems to me very, he has a role, an active role in all of this. Yes, and you almost wonder if it's not as much by proclamation. Like the proclamation's almost permission giving to someone, right? Like, because the text doesn't tell us. We just don't know how much involvement he, he had in Belshazzar being killed, right? But we know right. 
it's almost as if Daniel is saying, look, the handwriting's on the wall. It must be so. This story just is so rich to me, Peterson, about the ways that it gives us insight if we're willing to look, you know, beneath the humor. We can get some insight about how oppressed peoples have to navigate all these tensions, right? Between like not getting dead at the end of the day, but somehow resisting a little bit. And yet to do that, to survive, you have to caretake these people who are oppressing you. It makes me wonder about LGBTQ people in religious spaces, particularly queer folks in churches in the USA, and how we've had to do this sort of thing for for years. Uh, and I remember, you know, back in the day that I was welcome, but not able to really be part of the leadership always because I wasn't seen as a real man, as someone who was struggling with being gay when I thought I was maybe going to become straight one day. but. I just think about all the caretaking that queer people do of church spaces, of religious spaces, cleaning, organizing, preparing, even comforting the the pastor at times. But it's a very tenuous relationship we have. Yes, it is. And, you know, my experience as, you know, a queer person and then as a trans person trying to find some point of reconciliation, you know, some way to enter faith community the caretaking that gender nonconforming, non-binary, and trans people do of the people around us is just staggering to me at times. It's exhausting, right? Like we have to sit there and listen to all that gendered language, despite how many times they ask us to educate them as if that should be our job. And so we educate and we agitate a little bit gently in a caretaking way. And then we come back in on Sunday morning and nothing <laughs> right. has changed. And people misgender us and people call us by our previous name. And we're constantly having to say, it's okay. It takes time. We understand you're trying and worry about them being hurt mm. that they've hurt us. Right. Right. And it gets me thinking about LGBTQ nonprofits, religious or otherwise, who have token members of their board, of their staff, who people of color, non-binary, trans, and how there's certain expectations that come with that, that, you know, we need you in a way affirm our message. Because if you do, then other people watching who are similar to you will maybe trust us more. And, and, but there's, a, yeah, there's, to me, there's always that challenge of how independent can I be? How independent can my voice be? Uh, or I run the risk of being silenced or pushed out because it's not my organization. Ultimately, I'm, I am a player here in somebody else's kingdom. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, the tension all the tensions, right? So there's the tension of being tokenized, but if you don't to somewhat, in some way, give yourself over to that, then our presence is even more invisible, right? And then we're exoticized in ways, at the same time, ignored unless someone needs to push us forward and say, oh, you know, we need for you to do your thing with your people, right? You know, there's, and trans people in particular, not that not that LGBT and queer folks in general don't live in that tension, but trans folks do yes. every day, mm -hmm. every minute, every hour of the day, this bizarre sort of commodification and consumerization of our lives and our stories and little anecdotes about us and how we 
pass, right? And we look so good and whether we're pretty enough or whether we're handsome enough, all of that stuff that gets lifted up in the tension of needing to be able to say, wait a minute, you know, it's not my job to teach you. If you were really invested, you could find the information you need to learn more about us. Not every one of us is a, an educator of all things trans or a knower of all things trans or queer or LGBT, right? Like we're people and there are as many ways to be one of us as there are now, ever have been, or ever will be people. Yeah. No, and I'm thinking, I'm going back to Daniel, who's in this court and has some power, you know, some position and obviously official duties to look after these troubled leaders. But I do wonder if there's a message here about Daniel having this second life, this other, other part being part of the resistance where was he in cahoots with the Persians? Was he part of this operation? Even this handwriting on the wall business, if this was not divine, but, you know, some sort of theatrical trick. I love that, you know, so many people know this expression, the handwriting's on the wall, but virtually no one, well, not many people know that it comes from this Bible passage. But I wonder, you know, like, I, I, part of me wants to think that there's nothing spiritual or supernatural at all about this story. I mean, what I'm wondering is like, is part of this story is like, yeah, this is what it looks like on the outside, but really, you know, behind the scenes, right. Daniel was in cahoots with the Persians. I don't know. It's just, a, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? Particularly since, you know, Cyrus allows the Jewish people to go home if they want to, and the temple gets rebuilt, right? You know, there are all these underlying things in the history of the Jewish people that sort of lie beneath the surface of the story. And you have to wonder if they all weren't so drunk that it was a perfect opportunity for some human intervention that appeared supernatural. And if he wasn't helping to plot the revolution, so to speak, and it certainly wouldn't be the first time or the last that a person, an oppressed person, was in a position to leverage some of the resistance in a way that brings yeah. about rebellion. You know, I think the Underground Railroad, like all the ways that people subversively resist empire while at the same time being in these positions of caretaking and sort of appearing at least to go along to get along. Yeah. Well, and, and also the many armed rebellions. I mean, I'm a pacifist, but you know, that needs, that doesn't get enough attention uh, that uh, in addition to the right. underground railroad, there were freed slaves and slaves who armed themselves to actively rebel. My, my husband's from South Africa and he, you know, we'll see like a Star Wars movie. And he asked me one time, he says, why is it that Americans identify with the rebels and never with the empire in these movies? And it's true. And in, in, in American consciousness, we still see ourselves as the revolutionaries and we, we don't see where, how we are empire in the world and how we operate in the world and what we've done in Latin America and all that, that, that we are the empire that the rebellion is often against. And I think there is a fear of those oppressed, marginalized people that they will rise up one day and overthrow. Yes. And I think that's why there's such a stirring of the racism pot throughout our history in this country. There's a stirring of the gender pot at every possible, you know, soup in the pot. They keep us divided on purpose, right? Because we have this overarching narrative 
in the United States in particular that your spouse so eloquently points out, right? This country was built on a colonizing, occupying empire. That is literally what happened. And it was built on the backs of oppressed, poor white people sent over here to clean up the wasteland. That's what it was referred to by the British crown, was the wasteland of this new continent, right? So that leads to Bacon's Rebellion in Jamestown, right? Because you've got indentured, poor white folks who will never get out of their indentured contracts working alongside these people who are now being shipped here as slaves. And they rebelled and burnt Jamestown to the ground. We see in our legacy a whole series of policies and social interventions that were designed to keep this particular narrative going and keep us from you know, realizing that we live in the midst of empire. And there's something I think that goes along with that too, that Daniel rejects, right? Is this idea of some relative comfort being doled out to you in doses by the empire, right? And so if you're comfortable enough, you won't rebel. And so maybe there's a clue in that to what you're postulating as a possibility, right? That Daniel was somehow part of the insurrection when he says, no, I don't, you know, I don't need fancy robes and whatnot. I don't need all that. I'll just interpret this for you. Maybe some kind of foreshadowing. I don't know. Well, it it also speaks to the many ways these kind of passages can be hyper-spiritualized. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's, you know, and you see this too with, with Jesus and the Jesus movement, you know, when he's talking about the kingdom of God and, you know, always oh, talking about a spiritual thing, not a, an actual physical thing, not overthrowing the government of Rome or overthrowing religious establishments. And there are people in power who really like those interpretations, like, oh, it was God who did all this. But clearly in the text, it says a human went and in the night. Yeah killed Belteshar. It was an assassination. It wasn't like he choked to death in his sleep. That God, that hand of God went and did it. No, no, there was a human agent there. And there's this whole other way of reading these texts, of course, that it is about how do you overcome an enemy? And again, I'm a pacifist, so it makes me a little anxious sometimes talking about some of that. But these are stories that, that, that even, even in the Jesus stories, there's this tension between physical violence and this sort of spiritual movement. And I think often the people who win this argument and, and interpret the text are the people who are in power who don't want people questioning them, rebelling against them intellectually, let alone physically. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that speaks to how the sort of underlying ethos that Jesus and Moses before him were practicing becomes spiritualized and translated into, well, it's all better in the hereafter. Maybe bad now, but when you get to heaven, it's all going to be okay, which is absolutely not what Jesus was talking about. And so like these things become super spiritualized. And then what, what the message is that you need to worry about your individual purity, your relationship with God. And the, the lens is put on the individual to become pure and never on the nation never on the system to get purified. Rather, you be the perfect little warrior in your prayer time, and God's going to look out for you. And I see the same thing play out in the environmentalist movement, where it's up to individuals to be the perfect little citizens, yet no fossil fuel company or government is held accountable. 
Rather, we're told to be these perfect, pure, holy beings of ecology. Yes, and pray about it. Pray for the planet, Peterson. Pray, you know, pray, pray for you the know, planet. I'm, yes. <laughs> because the planet needs our prayers. Thank you for digging deeper into Daniel. I'm glad that we spent time with the story. Have you shown me things that I'd not considered before? And in thinking about another text, I was reflecting on what Daniel does not have. And Daniel oh. does not have sex. It is a sexless book. There's no romance. <laughs> there's no family. Really, there are no women in the story. They're these gender non-conforming eunuchs, but like it's, it is, uh, yeah, it's interesting what's lacking. And I thought, well, we need a little love in this for sure, a little sensuality to just sort of add to this. So I have a poem by the gay Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca, Madrigales or Madrigals. I'm going to read it first in Spanish and then I'll read it in English. Madrigales. Como las ondas concéntricas sobre el agua, así en mi corazón tus palabras. Como un pájaro que choco con el viento, así sobre mis labios tus besos. Como fuentes abiertas frente a la tarde, así mis ojos negros sobre tu carne. Estoy preso en tus círculos concéntricos, como Saturno. Llevo los anillos de mi sueño y no acabo de hundirme, ni me alevo. Like concentric waves on the water, your words in my heart. Like a bird that collides with the wind, your kiss on my lips. Like open fountains fronting the night, my dark eyes on your skin. I'm caught in your concentric circles. Like Saturn, I lug around rings from my dreams. I'm not totally sunk. I'm not rising, my love. That is beautiful, and you read it beautifully. Thank you. There's another Thank hidden you. talent you have. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I'm so um, I'm so glad that uh, that we did Daniel, and I believe next month one of your friends is coming on. Yeah. Joy Layden is going to come and talk about Jonah. Yes, I am so excited about that. It was a joy to discover Joy's work. She has a great book, The Soul of the Stranger Reading God and Torah from a Transgender Perspective. And her own memoir uh, sounds really fascinating of her, her experience as a trans woman who's Jewish, who now teaches at a major, major institution. So that's, yes. that's really exciting. I'm excited about having her. This is Elizabeth Jeremiah from the Elizabeth Jeremiah Global Worldwide Ministries in Jesus. Now, while I am terribly uncomfortable with these alternative interpretations to the Holy Scriptures that Liam and Peterson do, I am actually quite interested in some fresh new approaches to reading the good book. And that's why I'm very excited about Peterson's film, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. It's powerful, and it's so subversive. You can find it at petersontoscano.com. Do not tell anyone I told you about it. An excerpt from my new podcast, Bubble and Squeak. He said, I want you to take off all your clothes and then get bags and give me everything that's valuable. I have body issues on a good day with a... (laughs) 
pistol pointed at me, it was, um, it wasn't so hard to get out of my clothes, actually. Heimbach, General Stahl, Elijah Heimbach speaking. How may I help you? Yes, I wonder if you carry any tofu. Tofu? Oh, uh, something wrong with your feet. We have uh, ointments, balms, liniments. So what exactly are you looking for? Glenn's about six foot three, so he is doubled over. We're riding through the streets, weaving in and out of traffic, going past all sorts of stores that are selling Christmas decorations and food and lots of motorcycles. Bubble and Squeak, wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll get right back to the creativity and erudition of Peterson Toscano and Liam Hooper, today's guest hosts for Spirit in Action. But I want to remind you that you'll find our programs on northernspiritradio.org, all 15 years of it, complete with links to our guests, a list of the stations where our programs are broadcast, and a lot more, including a chance for you to rate and comment on particular programs. Please do share your voice, and then look at the donate button and see if you're led to help make this program enduring through your support. We'd appreciate it. But first, remember to support your local community radio station. Make the voice of the people possible through a gift from your hands and wallet. We need local media. Conservative, right-wing media is heavily funded by corporate interests, but we can offset that investment if we do a strong investment of our own. Together, we can do it, all of us together. Now, back to Bible Bash, brought to you by Liam Hooper and Peterson Toscano. I'll hand the mic over to Peterson right now. Well, I'm really excited because um, you have a colleague that's going to be joining us. I, I'm stepping aside from my slot to tell a Bible story, and uh, we have uh, uh, someone that you know that you've recommended for the podcast. I was talking about Jonah. Um, could you t- uh, tell listeners a little bit about Joy? Yes, Joy Layden is a new friend and colleague I have discovered. Some of you may be aware of who Joy is. Joy Layden holds the Goddessman Chair in English at Yeshiva University and in 2007 became the first and still only openly transgender employee of an Orthodox Jewish institution. Her memoir, Through the Door of Life, A Jewish Journey Between Genders, was finalist for a National Jewish Book Award, and her recent book, The Soul of the Stranger, Reading God and Torah from a Transgender Perspective, is a Lambda Literary Award and Triangle Award finalist. She's also published nine books of poetry, including most recently, The Future is Trying to Tell Us Something, New and Selected Poems. Her work has been recognized with the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Fulbright Scholarship, an American Council of Learned Societies Research Fellowship, and two Hadassah Brandeis Institute Research Fellowships, among other honors. A nationally recognized speaker on trans and Jewish identity, Joy serves on the board of Keshet, an organization devoted to full inclusion of LGBTQ Jews in the Jewish world. Uh, and so... We welcome you, Joy, to the Bible Bash podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
I'm just so glad that you're going to share with us about Jonah and, and how it works is just share with us what you have and we will listen with rapt attention. And then um, when you're done, we'll, we're going to jump in and ask you questions. And I've been looking forward to this all week. Fantastic. Me too. I don't know that I've ever really gotten to talk about Jonah out loud before, but I have been noticing and uncomfortably identifying with Jonah since I was a kid. And when I was a child, that identification was based on recognizing that Jonah is a spiritual doofus, by which I mean that Jonah, like me, is somebody who has a very clear sense of God's presence in his life. And yet, nonetheless, that doesn't seem to make him a better person. He responds to God's presence in a way that was very familiar to me as a child by trying to hide and trying to kill himself. He doesn't seem to get any particular wisdom or morality or sense of community or connection from the intimacy that he has with God. He's alone with God's voice at the beginning of the book, and he's alone with God's voice at the end of the book. And that was very much the way I felt as a child. I think like a lot of queer children, maybe particularly trans children, but I felt I was living in hiding, felt very isolated from human beings. I was pretty sure that terrible things would happen to me if anybody guessed that I wasn't the boy that they thought I was. And I think that my distance from other connections with other people and my distance from my own body and my dissociation from my own social identity gave me a much clearer sense of the presence of God. And that relation, that sense of God's presence, that was the one kind of contact that I had with somebody who knew who I was and who I really felt was there with me, who I wasn't trying to hide from. So it wasn't until much later as an adult that I started to recognize that Jonah was a much more um, specific kind of story about transgender experience. I'd like to, because I, I'm not, I think this is the most efficient way that I can explain what I mean by that. I just want to read the brief section from the book where I talk about my reading of Jonah from this perspective. Jonah is traditionally read on Yom Kippur afternoon. That's the Day of Atonement. So it's a time of extreme spiritual self-reflection and a time when Jews are supposed to think about all the ways we've gone wrong in our lives. And in many congregations, it's kind of comic relief in the afternoon. Everybody is weak from fasting. and You trot out the kids from the Hebrew school and they, they've made paper whales that they walk back and forth with. And Jonah definitely is a comedy, but I heard it in a different way as telling a story that I think every trans person knows, which is the story of someone desperate to avoid living as the person, in Jonah's case, as the prophet, they know themselves to be. From the beginning of the book, when God orders him to go at once to Nineveh and proclaim judgment upon it, it's clear that Jonah knows he's a prophet. He doesn't ask why God chose him to deliver this message. And he doesn't argue, as Moses does at the burning bush, that he isn't qualified to do it. He just runs away because, as he explains in the final chapter, he knows that God won't destroy Nineveh, no matter how wicked the people are. Even as God tells him of God's impending judgment, 
Jonah, as befits a prophet, already knows that God will spare them. Jonah is so desperate to avoid being a prophet that he abandons whatever life he's been living and boards a ship to Tarshish, which when I was a kid, I sort of identified with Buffalo. I was living in Rochester, New York, so Tarshish was clearly somewhere worse than wherever you were at the time. But as many trans people know, when we flee from being who we are, we flee from life itself. While his ship is tossed by a God-sent storm, Jonah stays asleep in the hold of the heaving ship, in a slumber so deep that it overrides even his instinct for self-preservation. When the captain wakes him and tells him to call upon your God for deliverance, Jonah responds not with prayer, but with a suicidal gesture, telling the sailors, Heave me overboard, and the sea will calm down for you. Why would Jonah respond this way? God sent the storm because he refused to go to Nineveh, so it would have made sense for Jonah to appease God's anger by telling God he would do what God ordered him to do. Jonah's self-destructive response reflects a psychological pattern all too familiar among trans people. Flee from yourself as long as you can, and when you can no longer endure the internal and external storms, Kill yourself for the sake of others, so you can avoid ever having to live as who you are. Jonah may have thought he was killing himself for the sailors, but the truth is he's so desperate to avoid living as a prophet that he prefers not to live at all. Trans people often tell ourselves that suicide will resolve the conflict between our need to be and not be who we truly are. Our families, our communities, our world will be better off without us, we think. and we released from the shame of hiding and the terror of living as who we are, will finally be at peace. In Jonah's case, the suicidal fantasy seems to come true. When he's thrown overboard, the sea stops raging, and he sinks peacefully into the depths, into the heart of the sea, where he's famously swallowed by a huge fish. But Jonah miraculously doesn't die. In the depths of the sea, in the belly of the fish, he finds himself alone with the god he fled. God literally surrounds him, providing him with breath, warmth, protection, sustaining his life in the midst of death. In other words, Jonah's flight from himself leads him simultaneously closer to death and closer to God. That spiritual paradox is at the heart of his story, and it was at the heart of the story of my life when I was living as a man I knew I wasn't. Like Jonah, I was so desperate to avoid living as who I was that I eagerly chose death over life. Even in the midst of family and friends, I felt like I was alone at the bottom of the ocean. But I wasn't alone. Those suicidal depressions swallowed me for decades. God was there, surrounding me, holding me, keeping me alive. Even while Jonah is in the belly of the fish, he sees his miraculous deliverance as a turning point. He's so grateful that God has saved him that when the fish vomits him out on shore, He overcomes his reluctance to present himself as a prophet and heads to Nineveh. Unlike Jonah, I experienced God as preserving me in the depths rather than delivering me to life. God didn't want me to live as who I really was, I told myself. God wanted me and was helping me to submerge my true self forever. That's what love is, I told myself. Pretending to be what others want you to be. Suffering in silence. Embracing loneliness giving up on joy. Year after year, when the ram's horn blew on the Day of Atonement, I wept, not because I was repenting of my sins, 
because I knew that no matter how heartfelt my confessions, as long as I lived as a man, I would never feel grateful or even truly alive. God could preserve my life in the depths of suicidal despair, but even God couldn't deliver me from them until I did what Jonah did, except that I had to live as who I truly was. Despite his gratitude for God's deliverance, Jonah still isn't thrilled about being a prophet, which in his case means walking through Nineveh proclaiming, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. As Jonah no doubt knew, prophets often paid a heavy price for expressing God's displeasure with the social order. Though Jonah isn't imprisoned or killed like other prophets, his work requires him to disrupt the community and challenge social norms by acting in ways that call unseemly attention to himself. Like Jonah, I knew I couldn't live as who I was without being stared at, treated as an embarrassment or public menace, and risking the ridicule and violence trans people face every day. It was easy to imagine how I and those I loved might suffer if I dared to express my female gender identity. But what good, I wondered, could possibly come of living a truth that would mark me publicly and permanently as other? That's Jonah's question, too. Despite his first-hand knowledge of God's plans, Jonah never understands what good comes of him living as a prophet, since he always knew God would be merciful whether or not he marched through Nineveh. But unlike Jonah, the people of Nineveh couldn't hear God summoning them to change their lives. They needed to hear that message from a human throat, from a body they could see, from a person who not only saw things differently, but who was willing to stand up and stand out as different. Jonah saved Nineveh, or rather enabled Nineveh to save itself, by accepting the discomfort and risk of being the prophet he was. Most trans people aren't leaders, visionaries, or prophets, and someday being transgender will be no harder to understand or accept than other ways of being human. When that day comes, we won't have to wonder whether we should kill ourselves for the sake of others, or pretend to be other than who we are. We'll face our human share of sorrow and struggle, when we look to religious community for help, we will know that the traditions that sustain, comfort, and guide others are there to sustain, comfort, and guide us too. But for most of us, that future is still a distant dream, and so we daily face the kinds of choices Jonah faced. Will we run away, sink into despair, throw ourselves into the sea, or will we live as who we are, even when that means being seen as different, disruptive, a threat to social order? I don't mean to suggest that the book of Jonah is about being transgender. The book of Jonah is about being human. But transgender experience is human experience, and the questions transgender people face are questions that face everyone. All of us, trans or not, have to decide what parts of ourselves we will and will not live. Each of us has to decide when we can't and when we must sacrifice our individuality for the sake of our families and communities when we have to be what others count on us to be, and when, like Jonah, we have to live the truths that set us apart from others and reveal to the world what we have revealed only to God. When we read the book of Jonah in the light of transgender experience, we're reminded that the crisis it dramatizes is one that faces most people sooner or later. The crisis of realizing that we must live what makes us different, or we can't live at all. So I would like to stop there and hear what you guys wow. are thinking. I'm feeling more than I'm thinking. Wow. So 
Joy Peterson, if I may, I would just like to make a comment and an observation, I guess. I don't know that I have a question, Joy, but what I do have is a profound appreciation for your reading of Jonah because I too relate to Jonah. And part of that relationship with this character I have is about my trans beingness too. But hearing you read it, is even more beautiful than it was when I first picked up your book and read it. And I just want to say, I don't know if you have people say this to you often or not, but the way that you describe, I had always, much like you identified with Jonah's sense of God in the despair, right? Mm. And not in the deliverance to life. But I felt sort of a deeper identification of that when I read your imagery of both the ocean and the fish embracing Jonah and that being God's presence. Because I know how many times in my life, particularly when I was younger, I felt this sense at my most darkest and in the longest nights of something holding me Mm. other than the bedclothes or the couch I was sitting on or the cab I was riding in this idea that there was something with me just holding me. Mm. And it was really beautiful to me to, to read that imagery in your telling. And I'm very grateful that you've shared that with us today, but I'm even more grateful that you've had the courage to share that with all of us who are able to read it. Thank you. I really appreciate how you use the story as a metaphor. And I know there's been in queer theology for the longest time, there was this treasure hunt to try to figure out who is trans in the Bible, who's gay in the Bible. And some of that is very speculative work. But what a lot of cisgender straight people have done for centuries is they see themselves in stories and they see the stories as a metaphor. So for instance, Hadassah, uh, Esther, when she comes out as Jewish, it's a coming out story with all of the risks that come with coming out and the dangers. And so it's, although she's not coming out lesbian or trans, she's coming out. And so any of us who've had to come out can relate to that story. So I, I've never seen, I never thought of Jonah in that metaphorical sense. And when you speak about the suicide attempt, uh, I never thought of it as such. I mean, obviously it makes sense. It's dangerous. How would one survive such a thing? And even that the, the seamen don't want to do it. They're like, no, 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 it's okay. You can stay on the boat. He's insistent. And that strain of self-destruction that can be in, in us because of so many factors is really powerful. Is there anything else you wanted to say about that? And I don't know, Jonah's overcoming or transition <laughs> away from. Well, I wanted to add a couple of things that I hadn't noticed when I was writing that part from the book, but that feel relevant to me. I emphasized the life and death drama of the Jonah story. And that is, for me, that is, that's still the core of it. But Jonah is really written as a comedy about how human Jonah is. Like, you know, strangely enough, we see Jonah from God's point of view. It's hard to identify with Jonah in the Jonah story because right from the opening words, you're like, wow, Jonah, you are messing up. And so the point of view that, 
<laughs> you want to identify with is God. Just do what God says to do and everybody will be happy. So, but one of the things that the story gets out of staging that is it shows us Jonah's, the importance of physicality to Jonah at the end of the story. So one of the things that I got a lot before, when I started coming out to people before transition and early transition, people would ask me why it mattered so much. Why the physicality of my body? Why gender? Why clothing? Why did these things matter to me so much? Couldn't I just be the person that I was? Couldn't I affirm that I was the person that I was? I was telling people I'd be the same person. So if I was going to be the same person, why did I have to disrupt everybody's lives in this way? And the disruption of people's lives really had to do with the externalities. At the end of the book, Jonah's camping out in Nineveh, and it's really hot. And he's complaining about not having shade. He's so hot, he tells God that he wants to die. And God sends a plant to grow up overnight with big leaves. And Jonah is delighted. He wakes up under the shade of a plant. Life is good. He's happy. Then God sends a worm to destroy the plant. And Jonah again is, I'm so unhappy. I want to die. I feel like that is such a humanly true thing. Like, you know, as absurd as our physicality may be, and I think certainly the details of gender expression, gender conventions, it's all mm-hmm. a triviality. It's fashions that change over time. Like, who cares in a certain kind of way? And the answer is human beings care. It matters a lot to us. It can mean so much to us that if we're uncomfortable, we may really feel like we want to die. And having a little bit of shade may make life seem okay. And then God uses this anecdote. He says, you know, you're all upset about the plant, which you didn't grow. It grew up in a night and a was destroyed in a night and, you know, you were bitterly lamenting about it. How do you think I feel about the city of Nineveh, which has all these people in it and also much cattle? That's the last line of the book. Also much cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, also much cattle. Yeah. De- emphasizing like, yeah, this is a joke. This is the Saturday Night Live episode of the Torah. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting that God is saying, I want you, Jonah, to understand how the world looks to me. And the only way I can do that is by analogy with your own very limited human experience, trivial human experience. But God says, you know how you feel about this plant? Think about it because that will tell you how I feel about the people of Nineveh. And I think that that's profound both in the way that it empowers us to do this kind of a reading of the Bible to say, yeah, let's take our current experiences and read the Bible in light of them. Like that's empowering us to do it. It's this, the end of the book of Jonah teaches us to read that way. But it is also in a certain way, I know that Jonah's being laughed at here, but it's also ennobling human experience, including, I would say, the experience of gender dysphoria for me, it by saying it is through the particularities, what we care about so much as little individual material human beings, that gives us access to knowledge of God. And I think that that's an extraordinarily profound lesson and invitation. Hmm. Indeed. Well, Joe, we're going to have to have you on the program again soon, I hope. I really, I, 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 and now I need to get your book. 
Now, which book did you read from? Oh, I'm sorry. I should have said it's the uh, latest book, The Soul of the Stranger, Reading God and Torah from a Transgender Perspective. And your memoir is Through the Door of Life, A Jewish Journey Between Genders. And you also have a book of poetry. Nine. Nine, right. And your latest one, though, is uh, The Future is Trying to Tell Us Something, New and Selected Poems. Yes. And um, for folks listening, how can they find you online and follow you? Uh, what are what are the social medias that you're on? And do you have a website? Uh, WordPress.joyladen.com. I'm on Facebook, Joy Laden, and I accept friend requests and messages. And Laden is spelled L-A-D-I-N. And that WordPress site again is joyladen.wordpress.com. Joy Layden, thank you so much for being with us on Bible Bash Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I thank you so much for doing this. I think this is a fantastic, yeah, fantastic to have these conversations. Yeah, I really appreciate you inviting me in. And, and we want to do more of this. Uh, we'd love to have other guests on. And we'd love to hear from listeners. Uh, Liam, how can listeners reach us best? The best way to reach us is to email us at ministriesbeyondwelcome at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Bible Bash Podcast today. Bible Bash Podcast is a project of Ministries Beyond Welcome. Learn more about us at ministriesbeyondwelcome.org. Thank you for listening to Spirit in Action. We're really grateful to be with you today. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Mark, for having us as guest hosts. Indeed. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome, Liam and Peterson, and it's been great to again have you back on to share your Bible Bash podcast. Such great stuff, taking back to the people this revered resource, the Bible, out of the hands of those who would use it in the service of repression and exclusion. You're both doing great work. And I look forward to having you back soon. We'll be back next week, folks, with lots more world healing work and workers. So tune in next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh